Welcome to the Bali Effect. This is Preeti Tana. This is Didi Perry. <sighs> Breathing is important. Mm-hmm. How about we started there? And I just need to keep reminding myself of that because this day, this last 24 hours, this last week has been horrifying. And we have a lot to cover. So, uh, Preeti, if you don't mind, I would like if we can just abbreviate our usual, you know, introductory remarks, um, because I really want to get to the extraordinary guests that we have. But I want to know um, from you, can you tell me in five words, how are you feeling right now in this moment? Incensed, I think, frightened, repulsed, um, apprehensive, mostly heartbroken. Okay. Yep. The same. The same. I, I went for a, a brief walk this morning just because I needed air and I found myself crying. And before I could realize it, there was a man looking at me and I could tell that he was like, are you okay? And I was like, oh oh my God, like I just, it just hit me. Um, I I live a block away from one of the police stations that was a site of not demonstration, protest is fine. But when it turns violent in this context, it, it becomes a nightmare. And I'm feeling shocked. I, I'm stunned. I am surprised at my own surprise because I know this stuff exists all over. But this is more than five words, damn it. How am I feeling? Five words. Full of expletives. That's three. But if I had to encapsulate it more, I would, you know, lift the line from uh, Solange is weary. I am weary of the ways of the world. Right now. But the thing that I reminded myself in my walk after I pulled it together, and people really helped to lift me because as I was walking along, I just went to, to the park in the market. People, like strangers, were like, how, how are you? Or, how, are you having a good day? Like total strangers and black folks and white people because our community was shaken up last night. And that made me feel hopeful. And I think I'm going to have to not watch the news for like the rest of the day and possibly tomorrow. But for now, I'm going to just keep on breathing. All right. I've said way too much tonight. Oh, go ahead. That's okay. I, I think one of the things that keeps me hopeful is, you know, our guest today. Absolutely. And the yes. Doing. So let's, let's get into introing our, our, I have so many wonderful words for him from what I know, but, and I'm sure more so after this podcast, but go ahead, Dee. Well, we have someone who to me needs no introduction because of all the many things he is. He's my friend. I love him so much um, and have loved him for two decades. Um, But David (laughs) Johns, David Jermaine Johns, you all right, brother? Get get you a test. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay. 
David Johns is the consummate activist. He is an educator. He's a community leader. And he has such an extraordinary bio that if we just read that, we'd be taking up the whole podcast. So in a nutshell, I can say he started out as a kindergarten teacher, and then he became the education policy advisor to the late Ted Kennedy, uh, the senator. And then he became the executive director of the White House Initiative on Educational Excellence for African Americans, which was a position created for him by Barack Obama, to name a few. And right now, most recently, he is the phenomenal executive director of the National Black Justice Coalition, which is America's only civil rights organization focused on empowering the black LGBTQIA plus community, eliminating racism, homophobia, and stigma. (sighs) And if that weren't enough, he's also pursuing a PhD in education and sociology. So, you know, standing next to someone like that, your life, throughout your adult life, you feel very under accomplished, but (laughs) I just feel nothing but pride. I feel nothing but pride. David, welcome. And thank you for being here. We've been trying to get you for months from the very beginning, but we first. really appreciate you. The first names, DV spoke. We got to get this guy. <laughs> welcome, welcome to the Bali Fest. We appreciate it. And if you could, um, you know, there's so much to cover, but David, you're originally from LA. And my question, Lord. yes, you know, your work has brought you all over the world. And I think that that is something that, you know, so few people ever get to to experience or do. Um, Can you tell us about your start? When you were first starting out, what were the educational opportunities that were available to you um, from where you were from? Um, So I appreciate that. Thank you both for making me blush um, and for um, helping me shift out of um, feeling a lot of what you described um, to Uh, being reminded that um, I have the unique ability to stand at a place where my purpose meets my passion and to show up um, at times such as that does not mean that I am uh, also not weary because I'm beyond exhausted. Um, But uh, remembering that is um, restorative and helpful. So thank you for that. Um, The answer to your question is that as a Black boy, um, from a non-nuclear family raised by primarily by my mother. Um, my father and I, interestingly enough, are uh, rebuilding, actively rebuilding our relationship at present, which is um, a beautiful and unanticipated thing. Um, but uh, growing up in Inglewood um, to a, a mother who worked and made miracles happen, my educational opportunities were uh, restricted. Um, they were limited to schools that were available based on our socioeconomic status, literally um, my genetic code and our zip code. Um, and most of my life, I spent by myself um, traveling from my community in Inglewood to better schools and wealthier read white neighborhoods um, so that I could, quote, get out. Um, I think often about, especially as it relates to the pursuit of a Ph.D., um, back at Columbia for my third tour of duty, um, uh, what the message that that we send to uh, uh, poor, our low income, um, black and, and Latinx, non-native uh, uh, students with disabilities, when we say to them, you have to leave the very place that birthed you 
in order to acquire the uh, relationship skills, uh, credentials often needed to be successful. Uh, but that was very much my experience. Um, and so I graduated from um, a system of schools within the uh, LAUS uh, public school district uh, that were forced to accept uh, talented Black students through uh, busing, uh, forced integration efforts like busing, uh, magnet programs, and charter schools. Um, and so at these schools, again, I was often the only Black student in my class. Um, I often experienced teachers uh, calling me the names of other Black students that they may or may not have had, um, and other forms of racism, uh, uh, white supremacy and anti-Blackness to be specific. Um, and the shorter version of this conversation is I uh, worked my ass off. Um, I earned admissions at a number of institutions across this country um, and decided to attend Columbia um, in New York where at the time, <laughs> which is where we met, uh, and it continues to be formative uh, in so many ways, uh, challenging and otherwise. Uh, uh, but Columbia was, at the time for me, um, a way to get out of L.A. Um, and experience a city that was uh, very similar, right? Um, a- another big city, a place with um, similar cultural offerings and expressions of diversity. Um, and as an institution, Columbia was... Um, uh, uh, an exceptionally resource-rich institution um, in the middle of this big city, but that felt like this tiny little jewel. Um, And so I appreciate, in hindsight, the ability to be introduced to friends that I have uh, have and will have for a lifetime, Um, uh, 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 individuals and concepts, people like Manny Mirabal, a professor that I am blessed to have learned from, um, uh, teachings of people like Barbara Ransby that I uh, call upon uh, daily um, and other experiences like organizing um, an organization, literally my senior year to protest the convergence of ignorance and privilege, um, because each of those things, those experiences and those relationships continue to uh, inform my uh, daily experiences. Wow. Well, I got to say, I remember the moment that I first met you and it was, it was like the first couple of days, you know, that that we were on campus and yes. And I remember, you know, first of all, and I think any non-white person in a space where people don't look like you can relate to this, um, or actually not just racially, but any, when you are in the, uh, the minority, I think anyone can relate. Uh, I, I mean, air, quotes, air quotes around air my quotes. majority, right? Absolutely. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and so I remember, you know, when I got there saying like, okay, I, I want to see like where all the other black people are because, you know, we're outnumbered. And, you know, I, I was I walking know. by with Linda and then this tall guy just like runs over to us out of nowhere, like makes a beeline. And he's like, hey, other black people, I'm David, I'm from LA. Like sticks his hands out to shake our hands. And we re- first we felt so special. We're like, yes, okay, another one. But also, <laughs> we realized he wasn't just doing it for, you know, just us because we thought we looked so friendly. He, David did that for everybody. And so literally the line became, everybody knows David. Every, and that still is the line. And I'm wondering, have you always been this community focused and understood the power of your community and sought community in this way? 
I, yes and no. Um, I think that it's really difficult to engage in these conversations because I often have the benefit of hindsight and, and the, the way that we engage in discussion um, often sort of erases uh, the acknowledgement of that. Right. So I think that that's important to name. Um, and so, uh, no, it is not the case that I have always uh, acknowledged and leveraged strategically the power of community in ways that I do now, especially leading a civil rights organization at the intersections of racial justice and LGBTQIA plus equality. Um, a lot of that has been sharpened over time and very much informed by uh, all of my lived experiences, right? And roles, uh, some of which you mentioned and, and, and some that might uh, come up in the course of conversation. Um, and it is also true that I have always been aware of at least three things. One, that I am a product of a community that continues to conspire for my success, right? Um, I am and have always been, um, as early as I was introduced to reading, um, uh, aware of the number of ancestors that are sacrificed uh, and have literally um, engineered things. I think often about divorce, especially in the pursuit of my graduate degree, um, opportunities for me to be able to claim the space that I have been able to claim publicly. The the second thing is, um, to your point, uh, Dee, I was... I was intentional in knowing that when I arrived on campus at Columbia, um, I was going to know every person of color um, uh, because it was an institution that was designed, probably literally built by people of color, uh, but not with us attending in mind. Right. And so the fact that we were outnumbered by people who were whiter and wealthier and more privileged than we were uh, was something that, of course, I was aware of. Uh, and, and knowing and building relationships with, with those of us who were similarly positioned in this hierarchy of um, access to power um, was something I knew would benefit all of us, both then and I thought in the future. Um, and so that, I think, is something that I've always been aware of and, and sought to do, even in school, right? As the only Black student in many of my classes, I had to uh, develop relationships, right, before school, during nutrition and recess or lunch and after school, with other students who had experiences that were much more like mine, if only so that I didn't go crazy uh, based on all of the things that I had to experience in spaces with uh, mediocre white people, right? Um, and I think the last thing is that um, even as evidenced by uh, this, this, this exchange now, um, I understand the power of community. Um, I, as a person, am, um, I'm a Pisces, Aquarian cuss baby, um, mm -hmm. I'm an educator by nature, so I am like I am highly reflexive. I'm also very emotive, um, and I'm affected by um, energy and people and things in the world. Um, and so I said to Danaka that if not for the fact that like we are real friends, uh, I, I, I would not have wanted to have this conversation. In part because I am tired, right? And 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 um, what I am acknowledging and celebrating is that. Uh, how I get through my tiredness is being reconnected to the source of why it is that I am able to do the things that I have been privileged to do. Um, and a lot of those reminders come uh, in moments when I need them from the people in my, my village. Yeah. Can I answer your question? Oh my God. I, I, this is, you know, twice in conversation. I think we've been on for about 10 minutes. You, you've mentioned the exhaustion and I'm tired and, uh, can you can you tell our listeners why? Huh. Or, I mean, really, truly, I think it's important to hear uh, why you're exhausted. Yes. <laughs> you don't have four hundred uh, years. 
they do. They do. <laughs> Not on this podcast. So <laughs> oh, they don't have. Well, yes, that. Uh, um, so I heard that I could say they don't have 400 years. And my thought was they don't have 400 years of experiencing uh, racism and anti-blackness um, and oppression. And they do. Um, and for the reason that um, white supremacy, what black feminists refer to as the sign uh, <laughs> systems and symbols that affirm this myth that white people are uh, naturally um, deserving of and um, work in ways that are meritorious and claiming privileges that they have um, is invisible, right? Um, uh, th- there have literally been institutions um, and, 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 and systems like public education, the one that I study, um, the uh, judicial system, the one that many people are responding to viscerally, the police system and departments as a force, right? All of these things were, and even how we have conversation, the language that we use to engage in talking about all of this, like literally knowledge, what we know and how we come to know it has all been constructed to make and then hide and legitimize white people claiming dominance. And so I am tired because last night I spent an hour talking to a very dear friend who is well-intentioned, but was insistent on helping white people deal with their discomfort. And one of the ways that white supremacy works is by suggesting that everybody's feelings matter, and that the discomfort of white people having to reconcile the contradiction of their merit and their privilege with visible examples of Black people who are treated in ways that are unjust simply because we have skin that has been kissed by the sun, like, you deserve to sit in that discomfort and to process those feelings on your own. I, I, but I, instead of doing that, yeah. they're asking us for help and, and, and not Googling uh, Robin D'Angelo articles or TED Talks about the shit. And... That contributes to the exhaustion. On top of that, I in the last two weeks have written no less than five statements mourning the tragic deaths of Black people at the hands of hate crimes and state-sanctioned actors like police officers. And so while the world is is, uh, much more familiar with uh, George Floyd and and, and the the tragic connections to Eric Gardner um, and Breonna Taylor, Um, And what happened in Kentucky, fewer people know about Nina Pop, a black trans woman who was murdered in her home and not a single person has been brought to justice or to to answer for this. Or Tony McDade, a black trans man who was beaten on on camera by five grown boys 24 hours before he was shot and killed by the Tallahassee police. Or McKinsley Lincoln a black gay man who lives in a part of Louisiana where it is not okay to be that, uh, who was shot in the head and who is uh, suspect, suspected to be a victim of a hate crime. And so on top of having to do the work of, um, of, of, of being black and, and responding to reminders of the vestiges of white supremacy, um, of trying to push my friends to hold space for themselves and not normalize white supremacy in the ways in which it works in this invisible and insidious and, and insidious way. I'm also responsible for highlighting that there are some of us who have 
intersectional identities that often go ignored. Most people assume that all black people are heteronormative or strictly heterosexual, whatever the hell that means. Um, and we don't have systems or the language again to capture these experiences, right? Like there, there's, there's very few data sets. There are very few conversations about when we are killed, all, how all of these systems and processes are, are contributing to it and otherwise need to be um, highlighted and then destroyed. And as a result of doing that um, professionally and personally, um, uh, I'm beyond exhausted. I think anybody would be. <laughs> and the reason why so few people might be able to relate to your specific exhaustion is so few people are doing the work in the way that you are. So first of all, David, thank you for even showing up today in the midst of all of this. And thank you for breaking that down because, you know, we all revere Baldwin, James Baldwin. And in The Fire Next Time, you know, he closes it out with, you know, basically a call. Uh, and I, I am butchering this, so this is not a direct phrase, but what I can recall is he basically says, like, we have, he, he uses the word innocence to describe white people's unawareness of their privilege and their racism. And he's like, they're not, they don't even realize that how, bad it is and we have to forgive them of it and we have to teach them about it but i would push back on this intellectual heavyweight and this person who i <laughs> revere tremendously because i hear what you are saying this shit is exhausting and i want to ask you you know there was a wonderful powerful interview that you did um on the breakfast club last fall, I believe. I mean, listen, for, for, for the people living under the rocks who aren't aware, David has one of the <laughs> most impressive social media, anything. He, he is, he's amazing. And he is, I mean, turn on any night, you know, given night at CNN, MSNBC, blah, blah, blah. He, he, he's that guy. Leveraging tools. This is about leveraging tools. Hey, get the message out. Right. And it was so impactful and memorable for me because you're in there with um, and I want to get their names right. It was Malik Yoba, Carmen Carrera, Nala Simone, and you speaking about trans issues. And I recall an exchange between you and Charlemagne where he really seemed very honestly transparent about not knowing what words to use uh, just to describe people who were transitioning, how to describe people who weren't heterosexual. And he was looking to you and I was like, wow, what are you going to do? And what I found um, was relatable, quite frankly. It's like, well, if we don't know, how are we supposed to learn? And in that moment, you perhaps were not as tired. And you, number one, you told him directly, this has been a harmful space for a lot of people in the community and you need to own it. At the same time, you know, it's good that you have us all here now to listen. And then you, you like schooled them. Didn't they have you come back? To, I've been to, on a couple of times before and after, that, yeah. They've been helpful right. in providing space. To yeah. continue the education. So can you tell us, when was it that you realized the power of having to engage your oppressors or people who behave in oppressive ways? 
Yeah, I can answer that easily. Preeti, were you going to say uh, something earlier? Uh, probably. I, you know, you, you I'll, I can go back to it if you want. I you were talking about the exhaustion, and uh, I, I wanted to to actually read your Instagram quote from a couple hours ago. Okay. It was so pointy. Uh, I'm going to read it and then we'll get back to these questions since you, since you asked me, but um, you posted this. It seems like it's a text between you and, and a colleague. Mm. And they say, what's up, good brother? I have a lot of white friends that are asking what actions they can take to combat, to combat systematic racism. Can you please point me in the right direction to provide them with tangible actions to take? And your answer for me was so incredibly powerful. You said they should really do the work on their own. Burdening us is yet another form of violence. And, you know, I, I, I really went, I read that, I read it so many times because I wanted that message to be so clear to me. And I, the reason why I brought it up when you, or wanted to bring it up earlier is because because that to me spoke to the work that you're doing and how exhausted you are. Yeah. And I, I just had never, and I'm, I'm going to be honest here, it had never occurred to me to, to really poignantly say, do the work. Don't burden me with this anymore. That's, that's your responsibility. Yeah. Nobody, I, oh, go ahead. I just wanted to acknowledge that. To me, trying to like distill it on my walk when I started weeping, I was like, if, if somebody broke into my house, beat me up, left me struggling for my life, and then came back and was like, can you explain to me why I did that to you? That would be absurd. It's and not, yet, but that's what happens. In the, exactly. Yeah, that's what happens every single time. Yeah, and I was going to say earlier too. I want, um, I want us all to disabuse ourselves of the feeling that we have to be okay or pull it together. Um, yeah. And so I'll acknowledge, like, uh, I am um, crying in this moment because. So I had that that exchange was what started that last response. Um, and a part of what um, is difficult for me is that that was like the last of probably. 70 messages like that that I have received. Mm. Um, and that one in particular came from somebody who was in my like inner circle. And it was the first of a series of exchanges where I understood that he was literally struggling with this responsibility he felt he had to like show up in this moment and help them get it right. Um, and what I know is that often that has not shifted anything. In fact, that practice of not allowing them to sit in the discomfort and to do the work for themselves is what normalizes all of this in the first place. And so in spite of the fact that like that was my response and I wanted to be done with it, I'm also concerned about my friend. And so the day that I am otherwise supposed to like clear my schedule and do nothing and just be I'm now literally finding and reading articles to write a letter about how we all need to be concerned about this way that like 
white supremacy also works. Um, and so, like, uh, again, this is difficult because I know he reached out to me because I can be helpful. Um, and a part of what, at least in this article that I'm reading now, um, it affirms that people who do social justice work are, um, like, we're, we're required to show up in particular ways, but there's a cost to it. Like, there's a literal, like, physical, as, as example by this moment now, my expression, right? Like, there, there is a psychic toll that it takes. Mm -hmm. And I, I, it frustrates me that, um, we're often not aware of it. The short answer to your question, Anaka, is that I've always been aware of both uh, the the uh, responsibility I have to challenge um, systems of oppression um, and and white supremacy in particular, um, because al almost all of my classroom teachers were white people uh, who often uh, did not see it as their responsibility to answer my questions. Um, sit in the discomfort of the contradictions that, that 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 my childhood mind would simply raise, trying to make sense of things that otherwise don't make sense. Why are we celebrating Christopher Columbus when it's clear that he didn't discover shit? As an example, and 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 okay, you don't want to engage in answering that, but now I'm supposed to to accept that you're an authority and that everything that you say is right when clearly it it's contradicted by things that otherwise offered up as as data right so my my experience as a black boy um who has other intersexual identities i pause try to acknowledge if if in that moment in my life it was also appropriate to acknowledge that i now identify as safe gender loving but but my experience in the world um um uh, i think required me to be aware of and um, I lean into the privilege around confronting uh, dominance and white supremacy and anti-blackness. Do you recall the moment that having to engage those difficult uh, figures of authority, um, you realize that you're speaking up and speaking back and pushing back actually shifted someone else's thinking? Do I remember the moment when me do when my advocacy shifted somebody else's thinking? Yeah. Um, about anything. I think I, I can I can recall examples of it, but I think more meaningful than me my recollection of my ability to do it is acknowledging that my mother is the first and most important advocate that I've ever known in my life. Right? Her um, leveraging all of her resources to ensure that I had everything that rich white kids had um, was for me, uh, a very powerful and meaningful and measurable demonstration of what one could do when one advocates for what one needs, right? Um, so um, I, again, was in anybody's program that ever existed because my mother figured out a way to get me enrolled, right? Mm -hmm. I was a sheriff's explorer and the youngest person to graduate from the academy. I had a pilot's license before I turned 16 and could drive. Where are we flying? I listen. <laughs> Right. I, 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 I did everything that I was a mama's. I am a mama's boy. I was a mama's boy. I've grown now. We're working through some of that. But um, I love my mama. Let's be clear. But but all of this to say that um, my mother would my, my 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 I went to a middle school that was located near um, O.J. Simpson's house in Brentwood, um, uh, California. I say that again because most people know Brentwood and can think about that community and the wealth based on O.J. 
we were pro- pro- prohibited from being able to access the school because of all of the uh, media attention connected to the to the, the murder of Nicole Simpson, just as an example. Um, at my um, um, seventh grade year um, at this middle school, my classmates started taking classes at the high school that I would graduate from. It was that competitive, right? I wanting to do the same thing, knowing that we had to run the same race with my additional challenges that that were created by their parents and their forebears, had to bring my mother and lawyers to the school to ensure that I could have access to the same things that they did. She would do that again when I started at the high school and wanted to take a course load that was heavily loaded with AP classes and honors courses. And the school's normative response to Black excellence is to say, well, we don't want the liability. Should he fail these classes, we don't want to be blamed for it. My mother showed up at a school with a lawyer from the Johnny Cocker firm and said, explain it in front of him. And so watching her um, again, and, and I don't know how she paid the retainer that I imagine they, that, that was required or um, came up for the money required for me to get tutors when uh, my eighth grade math was well above anything that she could ever do or any of the people in our, um, our, our immediate circle were capable of. Um, but her advocacy for me was, was transformative in allowing me to see what leveraging one's individual privilege acquired or inherited could do for other people. Well, uh, we need to get your mom on. We need to huh. her. That is incredible. I'd, yeah, the challenge is well, not my mother's dealing with the the the, um, the the barriers that are erected around uh, women of color um, and people who are um, aging and elderly in this country. So in spite of all of her um, experience, she now exists in a workforce that sees her as not being able to add a whole lot of value because um, she doesn't speak emojis. Uh, oh, that, that I can relate to that struggle as experienced by my own parents very deeply. And that is something I also think we should discuss here. Um, connected to that, David, do you remember when you, well, let me back it up. Was there ever a point in your life that you felt that you had to, that you did not understand the power of your identity? However you want to define that. Is there ever a point where I did not understand the power of my identity? Um, so I, um, identity development is a continuous process. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think that as I have grown older, um, I have found ways to be more comfortable in my skin, all parts of it. Um, and so I, 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 I'm struggling with the premise of the question. I, I guess what I can acknowledge is what I will acknowledge is that um, I am much more um, declarative about parts of my identity now than I once was. And to be specific, um, when I was an undergrad, um, I, 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 I did not, uh, how do I want to say this? <laughs> I did not want to allow myself, um, to engage with, uh, questions and thoughts about whether or not I would enjoy intimacy with another man. Mm-hmm. Um, in part because we live in a world that suggests that black people, black men in particular, 
cannot be, should not be. Um, I grew up Kojic and uh, Church Hurt has a lot of us thinking that um, homosexuality is a sin punishable by things like HIV and death. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and to be clear, I also um, have had the privilege and benefit of loving uh, uh, platonically and intimately and romantically black women over the mm-hmm. course of my lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so um, when I think about how I showed up um, as a student, um, particularly as an undergraduate student, um, I didn't really hold space for or have the language to be able to talk about um, intersectional oppression or liberation in the way that I'm able to do now. Case in point, it was not until um, within the last decade that I was introduced to the term same gender loving, a term that I now use as frequently as I use black, not as frequently, that's an exaggeration, but often daily. Um, And the Mm -hmm. term was created by a black man named Cleo Monago to identify and complicate the reality that gay as a term usually is normalized as and operationalized as used to refer to white gay men and the things that matter to them. What's on the gay agenda, for example? I say that in air quotes because I've never seen the gay agenda. If it exists, I just want to see the cliff notes, the bibliography. I haven't. I can't, I can't give it to you. <laughs> but people insist. But people insist that it exists, just like this black meeting where all things black are decided upon that I just haven't been invited to a spot not having my black card revoked. I forgot to send right? you the invite. Listen, friend, don't do it again. Just let me know. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Just let me know, right? The point, I don't even know. the point I'm trying to make here is that the term was not available to me as an undergraduate student to even complicate that lived experience and reality. Um, and so it was, yep, go for it. No, 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 girl. Go. I come back to it. So I, I am, I, I am now uh, better. I am now not better because that's not even right. Like I have the benefit of time and experience and 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 language to be able to show up um, in ways that I think other people might think of as more fully, uh, but but I, I I think more meaningfully as 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 a reflection of where I am at this point in my life. Uh, you know. It's, speaking of where you are at this point in your life, you speak uh, tremendously of your mother and she being an advocate for you in many different periods of your life. Where do you think you would be today if she she didn't stand for you and didn't advocate for you in all of those different moments? Because yeah, I, don't, I don't even know that my mind will allow me to uh, try and imagine uh, what's possible based on the data around the lived experiences of black, black, gay, black, working class, working poor people. Yeah, I don't even know. Because it's definitely not the American dream that I've been able to obtain. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, you hit on what I was really getting to, you know, because I do think that, you know, probably through your work in education, there are so many more that want to either feel that advocacy or contribute to um, the education of others, right? And so what is their next step? How do they get tap into what you so, you know, the path that you've laid because you had that advocacy? Yeah, my advice, uh, if I heard you correctly, which is like, what's the advice for folks that want to do something similar is to not, 
right? Um, I am uniquely positioned uh, to be talking about and trying to normalize conversations around Black queer things. And I mean queer with a capital Q, not just LGBTQ, but Black people with disabilities, Black people who are non-native, um, right? I, I am doing a lot right now to highlight that um, we don't even think about Caribbean people and HIV because Black Blackness as it's been flattened, right, erases the fact that there are, are uh, there's a, uh, uh, a panoply of experiences with regard to diversity. Um, I lost my train of thought. Um, what was the question you asked me? Yeah, that's okay. I think I think that um, you know, sort of going towards the, you know the oppression that others feel, right? Like, oh, the path, the pathway. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I say that to say that, like, um, I, I my ask would be for folks to to sit with themselves, to identify the things that make them happy, mm-hmm. and to think about how you can leverage your unique. Um, time, talent, and treasures, your skills, your interests, to make some form of change in the space that you occupy, right? Um, I had this conversation yesterday with uh, two young men who recently graduated from college. Um, shout out to Disha Dyer, the Obama's former first social secretary. She acknowledging hey, the disruption, right? The disruption of COVID um, mm-hmm. uh, tapped and invited a number of Black Obama alum uh, to uh, offer up uh, mentorship to recent college graduates. Uh, and both of the men that I was connected with are Black and same-gender loving. They are brilliant. One dr- recently graduated from Yale, the other from um, George Washington University. Um, they could have graduated from a, com- from a community college, and I would be equally as proud. Um, but the point here is that um, both of them, uh, again, because of how uh, these conversations traditionally have been had, are are. Um, have been told the lie that the only way for them to make meaningful and lasting change is to become a lawyer. Oh, because God. that's because that's what talented Black people who speak well and who argue and challenge white dominance and authority are supposed to do. Um, and, and I think people that are more sophisticated now might even say, oh, you should pursue policy. And the way to pursue policy is to become a lawyer, right? Um, and, and I now have the ability to leverage my experience to disrupt that fallacy and to say that's actually not true right and 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 and, and case in point one of the the, the young men is going to work in a college admissions office and i helped him to, to really realize that the goal is to create change wherever you are you showing up in that space understanding that there are things that need to change there are schools that need to be visited there are students that need to be loved on there are arguments that need to be had in terms of advocacy for students and what they need Doing that, keeping a record of it, working with other folks who know policy and can help you review institutional policy, then make recommendations that boards will have to vote on and can be codified, like that change is meaningful. It doesn't have to be labeled by or codified or stamped or affirmed by you obtaining a law degree that you'll never use to practice because you actually have not said anything to me about wanting to practice law, which is the only reason why I think anybody should go to law school, right? And you also don't really understand it. It's not your fault, but you don't really understand what policy is mm-hmm. or the, the, the enterprise of identifying, developing, and codifying policy, which can take years to engage in and actually yield nothing. And so um, that's a, I think I'm spending a lot of time here, but the point I'm trying to make is that too often we say that people like follow a particular path. For me, the, the beauty of now, especially in COVID, mm-hmm. is that like we get to disrupt all of that. Like, blow all of that shit up. 
right? That there is no there is no one way to do anything. My 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 policy pathway. I was a, a CBCF fellow working in the office of Congressman Charles Rangel and was doing shit that people much senior and who had been there a lot longer than me said that I shouldn't do. That I needed to like move up the ladder and I needed to get this job and then get that job. I don't play by the whose whose rule says who. Not here, right? It's exactly who are and they? other people can't do it, and so I just want people to do their own thing. I I just want to jump in and say when I I remember there was a time in college, David, where you were like, I'm going to law school, I'm going to be a lawyer, and you were like, I'm Mr. David Johns, ESQ. Yeah. You out of college though went on to pursue education, and you became a kindergarten teacher. What changed your mind? Yeah, so I deferred uh, law school uh, when the convergence of ignorance and privilege at Columbia in 2004 resulted in the uh, Federalist uh, paper publishing a cartoon called Blackie Fun Whitey starring Kunta Cornelius and Steppen, reducing the contributions of black people to sports and entertainment and ending with a slide that said black people do lots of other wacky things, but you don't have to worry about that until next Black History Month. That was um, uh, published and, and put in our mailboxes on February 21st, uh, which I will never forget because that is not only my birthday, but also the anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. Um, there was also um, the Orgo Night uh, fiasco, which um, our marching band, um, who aims to be offensive, uh, produces a skit where the goal is to offend everyone. And, and advertising for this particular set of uh, skits, which happened on the night before the organic chemistry final. Um, um, uh, one of the flyers um, said, um, uh, Yahweh won side zero and had a picture of a recently deceased professor, um, Edward Said, with an X through it. Um, another one had a picture of Michael Jackson as a black boy, then as a white woman. And it said, who needs ethnic studies anyway? Um, and it referenced the hunger strike that a student, a Latinx student, had been waging for months at this point. Um, to cause attention to the investment of Colombia in um, the raping um, and devastation of, of, of uh, indigenous countries. Um, and um, what was the third thing? There were three things that happened. There was oh, the, and then there was the, the bake sale, the anti yeah. the anti from the action bake sale, where the conservative club uh, pulled the stunt that they uh, the CCC, yeah, the Columbia University Conservative Club, where they essentially uh, held a held a bake sale in the middle of learner, the student center, and essentially said that, you know, uh, black people will pay, black men will pay a dollar for a cookie, black women 50 cents for a cookie, white men to try and suggest that we benefit from affirmative action policies, forgetting, in fact, that we attended a private institution that did not employ affirmative action, but in fact, employed legacy practices. And so before that, um, I'd applied to JD PhD programs because I had been told that a PhD would allow me to pose questions and then be paid to find the answer. Uh, and I thought, oh, next to selling drugs, which I can't do because I'm too cute to go to jail. That's the coldest <laughs> racket ever. Sign me up. Um, and I had been told that the law was a, a, a vehicle for radical change. The process of responding to the, the convergence of ignorance and privilege, um, uh, which included starting a, a campus organization, Columbia University, Columbia University Concerned Students of Color, um, uh, organizing a protracted series of silent protests. Uh, which interestingly enough, I saw um, are being staged in Wisconsin and other parts of the country uh, uh, today, um, and uh, and and literally negotiating with other student leaders, uh, friends, uh, 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 and, and colleagues 
um, with Lee Bollinger, the president of the university and, and trustees changes, like literal changes to the institution reminded me that the law is everything but radical and it is literally designed to preserve precedent. And so this is before I had been introduced to Derek Bell and his principles around critical race theory. I was definitely introduced to and, and loved a relationship with Kimberly Crenshaw, who had a dual appointment at Columbia and UCLA, um, and Randall um, Kennedy, who was also at Columbia Law School. And so I knew about intersectionality, but I did not really understand critical race theory and how that was an acknowledgement of the limitations of the law, mm-hmm. right? And 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 and, 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 a, and an attempt to to work within that institution and try and change it. And so I I, um, I found myself teaching elementary school in part because that's what God wanted me to do. I had always worked with young people, um, uh, but but didn't really believe that as a you know first generation college graduate from Inglewood, California, Columbia, that I was supposed to teach. Right, we're taught to take over companies and, and incorporate uh, countries and corporations. Um, but but it was teaching that really grounded me in again this calling I have to be an educator. I accept it to be a calling. Um, it, it it anchored my research. Right, I'm now able to study schools as public institutions designed to preserve white supremacy, um, and I'm now able to use my expertise in practice and policy design, construction, and operationalization to try and shift a whole lot of shit. So um, wow. I don't believe it, that, you know, so all I have to say, the law wasn't for me. And now I also get to um, tell a whole lot of other black kids that they shouldn't buy that lie either. I'm, I'm with you. I'm so with you. And that I'm so glad you listened to that and that, you know, you really had exposure that something else was possible. I think that one of the things that we try to drill down on with this podcast is the the real notion that you can do whatever you want to do. You just have to change your mind. And that is not something that people often realize. And so we were fascinated by the moments when people make the turn to say, wait a minute, I know I'm being fed all all of this stuff on the right, but what about the left? Maybe there's something different that is possible. And, you know, to your point about disruption, and this feels like the most disruptive year I've ever seen since I've been alive. And we're talking pandemic, we're talking about shit blowing up, just, I'm still not over COVID, okay? With all of this discomfort that comes out of it, it seems there's tremendous opportunity for just rethinking everything and for pushing back. And as tiring as it can be, now I'm turning to another point that you raised earlier, David. To me, you do the work with such finesse. (laughs) I mean, I love watching your Instagram because I get to see amazing, you know, shots of not only your advocacy, but like you're living this fabulous life. And so I'm just curious personally, how do you do self-care? Like, Uh, Oh, no, I don't. Oh, do you realize that your self-care is important? I'm always asking like, are you sleeping when I see you? But do you recognize that that is important to you? And do you have any suggestions for other people who might be tired just on how they can take care of their tiredness? 
No, that's, that's uh, a different question. I, no. That's a different question than the older yeah. one. You know, later brothers. I mean, like, what, what massage do you recommend? Okay, forget that. How do you take care of yourself? We'll just go there. I don't. I want to be clear about saying that I don't. I am tired in part because I neglect myself in the way that black girls who grow into women are trained to. Right. Um, this is me acknowledging that like my entire life I have, I've flown, literally I've flown on airplanes where I can, I can perform with the, the video now, the moment where they say, you know, if in the event of an emergency, put your air mask on first and then help those around you. Um, James Baldwin, again, you mentioned him, Jimmy, there's a picture of him. He's looking at me now as we have this conversation reminded us some time ago that to be black and relatively conscious, he said, in America, to so almost always be in a constant state of rage. And for me, that rage is a, re- a reflection of acknowledging that, that there are always these moments of, uh, of trauma. And I um, am, I try and be more mindful now of um, appreciating that if I don't, if I literally don't care for myself, I will be dead and I cannot do this work. But I'm also still working against years of being taught that I I cannot engage in what I have been told is a luxury, Mm. right? Most, most, and this is why even like the framing of the question is problematic, right? Like I'm, I'm saying no, because I'm, I'm, I'm acknowledging I'm not an expert in this and I struggle mightily with it. I don't sleep. I have anxiety. I have a physiological reaction to to stress, I, I, I channel my ADD in my work, right? Like these are things that um, have been re- very real for, for me on top of the fact that it is often the case that it is only white people who get to do things that allow them to be well, right? Um, I, I understand and want to shift into a space where I think much more about what's required for me to thrive. Yeah. I'm thinking a lot now about um, family planning and what it means for me to start a family. I'm spending more time um, uh, caring for plants and flowers. If you would ask me before COVID if I like flowers, I would have said no. I love them now. I like watching them change literally in the day I'm waiting to see when these last two bloom. Um, I have a bike that I got from Harlem Cycle that allows me to cycle um, and be anchored in um, um, uh, what, what people talk about and celebrate as fitness, but for me is often the ability to exercise, um, mm-hmm. so that I can process feelings or otherwise shake out things in my body. Um, and, and I think, and I listen to music. Those things are important. Um, I don't do them enough. Um, and they are a part of what I, I understand will allow me to thrive, but I am definitely not an expert in and don't want anyone to look at or emulate the way that I show up in the world as an example of um, how one should be practicing any form of self-care. I think it's incredibly difficult. I would imagine, you know, from your perspective, that it does seem uh, a luxurious point of view to say I need self-care when we live in this world that you've been so elegantly, you know, moving through and fighting for and this voice and we go through what we just went through last week, you know, it's almost as if you're saying, I don't have time for that because I just don't even have, I I need all the time I possibly can get to get this message out and to do the work that I need to do that I know needs to be done. 
for, for me and for others. And so, um, you know, it's funny. I'm a, I'm a big self-care advocate as I've been hearing you in this conversation. You know, Didi, when you asked that question, I thought self-care, you know, it, it, it's sort of, yeah, I get it. You know, you can't, you gotta, you gotta fill your own cup to help others. But it, I hear you, David, because I would be like, I don't have time. You know, I almost wanted to say, I can't imagine that you would. And so, um, I don't know. I don't know. There was no question there. It was just a statement. Yeah. You, so you know what? Self, self-care, as I understand it for me in this moment, would look like me being able to hold and play with my nephews. Right. Um, two twin boys, Jackson Jet, who, um, who literally are growing in a world where I am so prohibited cute. from being able to hold. Right. right. Uh, my mom called me the other day and said, uh, uh, Jax has your sensibilities. I, you know, there are certain shows that'll come on and he'll sit up and listen and pay attention. And he's curious about what's going on and he likes to be held. Um, and the fact that I cannot be with them right now or to talk to my 16 year old niece who's 16 going on 31, um, <laughs> um, th- that would otherwise be, um, self care. And, and there is again, the thing that I, I want, uh, everyone to hear me say and struggle that I'm struggling with is I know in my soul um, that it is not um, a luxury that that um, unless one makes take makes the time for care um, wellness is the term that I use more often um, you'll die right uh, yesterday I celebrated the 30th birthday of Erica Snipes Gardner the daughter of Eric Gardner who she died right because offering up her body, herself, her everything to the cause of justice, trying to ensure that um, we did not have to experience George Floyd. Um, That is important. And it is often the reality that um, too many of us often show up in the way that um, Whoopi Goldberg did as Celia when she reminded folks that all her life she had to fight. As, As always, we are... Uh, again, up on the hour, because uh, I don't want this conversation to end. No, I think this this conversation has inspired so many moments of awakening for me, <laughs> as this conversation with David and conversation with you, Preeti, so often does. So I thank you for always being an educator, always being inspiring, and. And patient. Educators do God's work. I have to remind yes, you do. Of that. And God <laughs> bless you. I want you to go to sleep right after this, but I, I don't know if you have that luxury, but I'm always praying for you and for your protection. And I just, we can we ask him the questions really quick, Preeti? Uh, yeah. Just to close it out. Very quick, David. Um, to offer Which us is hard for me because I clearly talk a lot. <laughs> you, have five, you have five words, kind of how we started this out. In five words, can you just give us a little bit of insight? One of the questions you actually already asked, we were going to say, who's your biggest cheerleader? I think your mom fit the bill. Um, but some other questions that we have for you, just in five words. Can you name three songs that speak to your journey right now? Yeah, of course. Um, Any and Everything by Donny Hathaway, but in particular, his version of Young, Gifted, and Black. Um, <laughs> Amel LaRue, who I love um, and who could sing the alphabet to me, um, has an album and a song called Infinite Possibilities um, that I often play um, when I need to hold on to something. 
um, and Guapale, um, a sister from Oakland, from Cali, uh, had a song called Closer, um, where over the chorus she sings about getting closer to her dreams. It's a song that I will frequently play in the morning to try and set intentions. I love it. Uh, do you want to ask the next one, Preeti? Mm-hmm. I want to live in a world without. Ah, I want to live in a world without white supremacy where uh, people, black people, queer people, Latinx people can just be. Go for it, Preeti. I keep going because. I have the gift of 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 sacrifice uh, uh, because I'm the beneficiary of the sacrifices that our ancestors made. Um, it's my duty and my honor. I don't think I want to ask another question after that. No, it's been our honor having this time with you. Love you so much, brother. Thank you. Love you too, and for for those who would like to learn about how to support your organization, um, how can they find you? You cash ass app us. No, uh, the, the organization is Fast. the National Black Justice Coalition. MBJC.org is our website. We're MBJC on the move across digital platforms. And I am at Mr. MR, my name, D-A-B-I-D-J-O-H-N-S everywhere. Fantastic. Yeah, absolutely everywhere. And if you buy products at Sephora, you can actually, yes, please explain very quickly. Yes. In the month of June, which is Black Pride Month, it's traditionally Mm -hmm. celebrated as Pride Month. Everyone should remember that um, Pride is a, uh, was birthed out of the Stonewall resistance, um, an effort to try and and hold space for um, Black and LGBTQ folks started by, look up um, Sylvia Rivera, not Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, yes. Um, but Pride Month is usually now celebrated by corporations, pride pimping and putting rainbows everywhere. But this year, Sephora, who MBJC is proud to have as a partner in the work, is leveraging their newly launched uh, member rewards program such that if you purchase products uh, in the month of June, um, so beginning June 1st, you can use your Sephora rewards points to donate to organizations that are doing good work in the community. Uh, and so in the month of June to kick this off, uh, MBJC has been selected. And so if you need to replenish something, or even if you don't, um, you can make an investment. You can make a direct investment or you can make an investment through Sephora. Finally, so, so fabulous to do with my Sephora points. It's fantastic. That is love fantastic. it. Love it. Yeah. 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 Congratulations and keep on keeping on. I gotta appreciate that because a part of what happened is that like that happened, like the announcement happened, it came out, and then right after that, there were these other reminders of dominance. Um, and I literally have not thought about it since then. And, and you asking me the question is um, reminding me to sort of shift um, and to try and take a broader perspective. So thank you for that. Well, you share the name with a, a biblical giant who with you know, three stones in a slingshot destroyed uh, a horrendous monster. And I think it's the perfect name for you. It feels that way. Like white supremacy is a beast. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. But you are the light. And yeah, period. Full stop. As you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, everybody, for for listening in, for, for having an open spirit.
listen to this one a couple times, you guys, because yeah. there was a lot in there. But thank you. We love you. And until next time. Yes. Bye. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. And, of course, follow us on Instagram, the underscore Bali underscore effect, and we'll see you there. Thank you. Bye. Check us out.